Hi everyone, this is Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus, your host for another adventure with Ramdas. We've picked out a uh, talk today from 1980, actually from my hometown in Montreal, Montreal. Uh, and he did this in front of a, a kind of a straight-laced audience, if you would call it that, the American Psychological Psychiatric, I think, Association. Well, before I get into introducing this talk, um, I have to make an appeal. As you all know, the Be Here Now Network, which Ramdas Here and Now podcast, along with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg, and what I do with Mind Rolling and Krishna Das and Lama Surya Das and uh, Dale Borglum and, and more, um, it's all part of our nonprofit foundation, Love, Serve, Remember. And although we don't have an official appeal month where we, uh, where we give people an opportunity to see what it is they can do to support the network, uh, I'm using this particular occasion, this moment, uh, to, to definitely appeal to everybody and in this case, I mean, I usually talk about the Amazon link and so on and make recommendations. I don't do much of it on, 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 Ram, on Ram Das here and now. Uh, but I would like to make one suggestion as a possibility for everyone to consider out there. And that is simply if you could do a recurring donation of $9, which is the magic number being a uh, part of the... Uh, the guru number 108, so 9, 27, 54, 108, any one of those, but let's just start with $9. If you can just go up to Be Here Now Network and go to the support or donate button up on the menu and and do a recurring donation. That'll go a long way to support the network, which does need support. There's a bunch of people who are putting together all of the material the content, the editing, the sourcing, uh, the actual uh, endeavor of each one of us that are doing these podcasts, uh, putting the time in and uh, to present them properly and, and finding, in this case with Ram Dass, uh, I engage the people in the media library, Nathan and Cheyenne, to to really source out of this extraordinarily large um, host of talks and videos and so on with Ram Dass to just get the, the, the right exact one that uh, really can help all of us on our path. So I'm not going to say any more than that, but I do wish you would uh, all consider uh, helping us out here it's in it. We're in the middle of the summer, a little bit of the doldrums uh, with people very active, vacationing and so on and so forth. Uh, but um, we all would appreciate it and uh, thank you for the support you have given. Onward and forward. So this talk, uh, basically it's Ramdas talking about how to live uh uh, actually, as with everything Ramdas does, it's way more complex uh, than saying any one thing as the definitive theme of uh, of a talk. Uh, 
but in this case, he does talk about how to live on this plane as if we are all us. And um, if that isn't the certainly one of the biggest issues of today, where we are now with the deep, deep, deep polarization in this country, in this world, actually, um, in so many different ways. So how uh, any advice we can get on that subject is absolutely well taken as far as I'm concerned. So that's the, the initial um, point of discussion for Ram Dass. There's also discussion around um, the incarnation and how we embody that incarnation and how we don't pay the kind of attention to it that we might in in regards to its preciousness. But the other thing, right in the very beginning, and this made me think of something, uh, he talks uh, about the Tao. Um, The Tao is uh, the natural law of things. And I don't know, uh, we've all heard of the Tao, and there's many great poetic uh, readings from the Tao. uh, And... uh, of course, this is part of Taoism, Taoism, T-A-O-I-S-M, pronounced Taoism. And uh, just recently, I did a podcast on mind rolling with uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi? <laughs> Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who's a, just a wonderful, very uh, free spirit regarding how uh, he brings together all the different traditions and uh, honors them all. And he, he did a he wrote a beautiful book called The World Wisdom Bible uh, in which he compares all of them. And, and he goes through the different uh, representations of uh, mystic traditions, religious traditions, around spiritual traditions around the world. And I found, um, as I read through them myself, I went, wow. The Tao, Taoism is like, wow, we could really use that today. Uh, and I thought I'd just give you an idea of how he uh, couches it. Um, the, ex- the existential problem highlighted in Taoism is, is the loss of our intrinsic naturalness. All right. We can all relate with that. The Taoists hold that we are born free. That goodness arises naturally from living that freedom. And the constraints of formal training and education ensnare us in systems of convention that rob us of that freedom. The solution is to return to the Tao, the way of nature, and to live in harmony with it. The Taoist celebrates the genuine person. I like that term. To cultivate our innate authenticity, we practice, quote-unquote, sitting and forgetting, which is ego-erasing meditation, dropping the self, and resting as the self, big S. Quote-unquote, fasting of the mind, freeing oneself of isms and ideologies. And, quote-unquote, free and easy wandering, which is ecstatic journeying in the mountains all of which foster an alignment with the Tao, the way of nature. Isn't that great? I love it. 
Ramdas also talks here about how um, science is meeting mysticism. Now, this is back in 1980, and it harks all the way to today, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama is working with the people like Richie Davidson on uh, really bring to, bringing together scientifically. They're experimenting with meditation and so on, and, and seeing that certainly the the Tibetan uh, reality, which has been exposed in numerous, numerous books and uh, revealed teachings, really meets up with uh, what science is proving out. So Ramdas, uh, it's interesting, in 1980 was talking about that and how uh, how that started to fit together for him. He also talked about how he was missing a boat about honoring a human incarnation, which I was mentioning before, and honoring what it's about, and honoring the precious preciousness of human uh, birth. And I myself had a teaching, and I've uh, this is something I've mentioned many, many, many podcasts ago on mind rolling. Um, but I was with when I was in India with Maharaji. Neem Karoli Baba, uh, it's a whole kind of miracle story. But anyhow, I ended up with uh, Kalu Rinpoche, one of the great uh, lamas of the last uh, century. And uh, and I asked him about, you know, I just came from the me- mountains and where it's, you know, I was really in a good place meditating. Now I'm in the city and I'm completely distracted and so on. Do you have to be in the mountains and to to be able to really uh, identify with your true self. I didn't say it in so many words, but that was what I was meaning. And he said he gave me a, a teaching around the seven siddhas of India, who all became enlightened through work. One was a weaver, one was a pottery maker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that it was not necessary to be in the mountains uh, to be able to uh, meditate on the true self and uh, doing it through work and doing it wherever you are was the uh, end end game. Uh, And then he said to me, and you must recognize that how precious your human birth is and do not disregard the physical body. You must take care of it because this is the only plane within which you can become free. There are many, many different planes, but only the human birth, the human plane, rather, uh, is it possible to become completely free. And he made such a big deal out of it. So when Ramdas talked about honoring the preciousness of human birth, I, I, it recalled to me that moment with Kalu Rinpoche. Um, yeah, what else? He talks about Gnostic intermediaries, this thing that Jung came up with which uh, a Gnostic intermediary is someone who brings together the East and the West um, cultures. And uh, certainly if Ramdas is anything, <laughs> that would be a good description for what he has done in these decades uh, with his great uh, capacity for understanding psychology as being a psychologist. Uh, and it ends with... Well, it doesn't end because we added on uh, uh, 
one of the uh, Q&As from this particular talk. But it uh, there's a story at the very end that he, actually it's, he reads it from a book. I've got to find out where that book is so we can recommend it. Um, it's a story of Dalai Lama's physician. named His name is Yeshi Dondin. Uh, and I had a good friend who's no longer with us uh, that uh, studied with him. He was an amazing man. I do not believe uh, he is uh, with us in the body right now. It's a story of him going and diagnosing a, a chronic uh, someone with chronic disease in a hospital with um, with regular doctors, and they wanted to just see how he diagnosed it from the Tibetan medicine point of view. And it's a simple story. It's absolutely beautiful. When I just listened to it not long ago, as I was going through this talk, I, it just gave me the most inner peaceful feeling. I mean, I hope it does the same for you. It's just an amazing little, just a beautiful little story. It's nothing, and yet it's everything. It's just wonderful. And then, as I said, we did put a Q&A. Uh, someone asked Ramdas, do you have any nagging doubts at this stage of the game. Well, this is in 1980. Uh, and he gave a very interesting uh, reply. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast, the Ramdas Here and Now podcast on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and check out everything else we, we have going, all the wonderful articles and um, words, uh, what are the, the heart wisdom uh, that we have going. can't even remember the damn name of it. Uh, and uh, different um, um, representations from the teachers. We have this host of, as I mentioned earlier in, the, in this podcast, of incredible teachers. So take advantage of it, and we appreciate the support, and we do continue to need that support. Whatever you can do, we thank you in advance. Here is Ramdas, here and now, how to live on this plane as if we are all us. So what are you are facing as you start to play with these planes of consciousness, these planes of reality, is that you are dealing with paradoxes that you must incorporate into your being because to be an impeccable warrior means that you are going to start to live simultaneously on many planes of reality not go back and forth from one to the other. And there becomes the stinker in social action. Because for me to go into the plane of reality where I see that we are all one and then come back into my separateness as an American where I am part of 6% of the population using 40% of the natural resources and dealing with the fact that somebody is blind in India for want of an operation that costs $5, and that I'm going to use my next $5 to go to the movies. If it was my father, I wouldn't, because he's part of my phenomenological self. If it is my cousin, it isn't. But somehow that person in India is them when I'm here, but when I'm one, it's us. And the interesting question is, when you bring it all together, how do you live on this plane as if we are all us? That's what you start to do as an impeccable warrior. Your game is clean across levels of reality. Now, some of the issues that come up are the ones that are in the title. Take free will and determinism. 
on this plane you chose to come into this room to hear this lecture. I'm over not making this very naive you philosophers understand. Not by choice, but because I'm naive. Uh, you come in here because you chose to come in here, and that was the experience of free will. And on this plane of reality, you have free will. If you go back one step further out, up into, or two steps, back into what's called the causal plane of reality, you see the lawfulness of the universe. And you know, even as psychologists on this plane, that your decision-making doesn't come out of the void. It does ultimately, but it doesn't immediately. It comes out of previous experiences. Well, it comes out of everything else in the universe because everything in the universe is lawfully interrelated to everything else, and the smallest leaf falling affects everything else. And you begin to experience what's called the Tao, or the natural law of things. And every system of studies of the students of the law, like, for example, students of the Torah, or any of the kind of deep, intricate laws of the universe, go back and back and back and get to the place where the planes of reality go back until they get to the edge where form and formless start to mingle with one another. And um, um, I know uh, Ron Valley is going to talk about this tomorrow in a much more sophisticated way, but let me just read this statement from physics, which is getting close to... Um, this game, the atom, the fundamental building block of matter, originally conceived as a discrete bit of matter, has passed through a stage of dissolution, finally suffering decomposition into elementary particles. These, in turn, fell under the spell of the principle of complementarity, not permitting to say whether they are waves or particles. As it stands now, matter does not matter anymore. It is dissolved into a web of abstract relations and is no longer material. Reality may now be regarded as the actualizing appearance of observational relations, with visible reality merely an isolated phenomenon. So that all of our models of the universe which we counted on science to protect the solidity of thingness, including ourselves, physics sold us down the river, back into the void, and said, in fact, there are not things on which all of this is based. And there are not things built on things. There is nothing built on nothing that appears as something. And that is the sophistication that now dovetails in with what mystics have been saying and writing for thousands of years and the beautiful, exquisite moment when the games are beginning to come together. And suddenly I can talk to physicists and we can hear one another afresh. So that to look at a limited cause and effect relationship and yet recognize that everything in the universe is related, where are you going to get a factor analytic program to cover that one? Okay. Okay. And you're also facing that as long as you do your research based on one plane of re reality, for example, we studied the effects of parent behavior on children's personalities in Freud's psychosexual stages and how parents punish their kids in relation. 
All right, the best you get in personality research, I don't know what they're doing these days, but 15 years ago, the best we were getting is a correlation of about 50. That's accounting, it's better than chance, we got something, but it's accounting for about 25% of the variability, right? That leaves quite a bit of room, doesn't it? 75% of the variability, which we can say is poor methodology, that would allow for reincarnation and karma. I just wanted to make sure there was space left. I mean, if there wasn't any space, I didn't want to bother with this stuff. But it turned out that in current research, there's plenty of space left for all of these other theories. For bringing other planes of measurement and reality and conception into our work. Okay, I will... Uh, um, What then happened in the middle 70s for me, I know you're looking at your watch and you'd like questions and answers, but I don't think we'll get to them because I think I'm just going to go on. Is that okay? Okay. I'm just going to go on for a while and then it, uh, probably I'll stop at the end of the lecture and then those that want to stay, even if there's no meeting here and ask questions, I'll welcome them. I don't get an audience like this every day. <laughs> I can't imagine who you are. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're me somewhere, but it's uh, far out. <laughs> the, um, what happened in 75 was that, um, and on from there, was that I began to see that, um, and I don't mean 75 specifically, but somewhere in that area, that um, I was missing a boat about honoring what a human incarnation was about. I was pushing away. I was throwing out the baby with the bath. I was so enamored of Eastern traditions. And the Eastern systems um, tend to be appropriate for cultures in which personality, ego, is role, basically role identity. And um, they are reasonably very structured societies with a focus on transcendence. And in which the concept, the basic concept of life is the wheel in which nothing's really going anywhere. We in the West have a much more um, existential ego. We have a sense of linearity of we're going somewhere, that culture is evolving, so on. And uh, we have developed the power of our intellect to control and master nature, while in the East it's been much more surrender into the flow of things. And it turns out, as I finally stand back far enough, that each of them has a tremendous amount to offer and that maybe you and I are at the cusp of an amalgam of those things and that I am one of the players in what's called the team that Carl Jung talks about as Gnostic intermediaries, people who are bringing cultures together through their own blood. He said it drove Wilhelm, Richard Wilhelm insane to try to do that, who wrote the, did the, translated the I Ching from Chinese, but uh, maybe I'll have better luck. Um, I began to see that uh, it was possible to have your cake and eat it too, in a sense that you could function using your ego as a functional working device without, getting without being ego-attached.
You could use the ego without necessarily identifying with it. And you could remain in the spaciousness that surrounds without being dissociative and pushing away. And what I was beginning to experience is that I had to notice that I was pushing away the physical plane and I had to go back into it. And one of my teachers, um, who is not on this physical plane, who speaks to me through a medium, I mean, I'll really let you show you how nutty it all is. I have a spook as one of my guides. Um, he said to me, he said a wonderful thing. He said, you humans are so stuck in your dualistic mind. I mean, who else could say that but a dolphin? Uh, you know, it's a great line, you humans. I mean, there's no, very few people ever talk to you from outside the human realm. And uh, he said, uh, you uh, are afraid. He said, you came to the earth to come to school. And why don't you take your curriculum instead of trying to, to skip school all the time? And I realized that there was function in my humanity and function in the experiences that were being presented to me and that I had to, what Buddha said, honor the preciousness of my human birth. And I have been exploring what that means since in the past five years in terms of what it means to be my father's son, what it means to be um, uh, an American, a Jew, a, uh, a member of an ecosystem, a member of the planet, uh, a sexual being, a, uh, um, an intellectual being, and so on. How do you use all these things and how do you honor them and participate in them at the same moment as the Bhagavad Gita, which is my basic teaching text for me, says, do what you do, but do not be identified with being the actor, A. And B, be not attached to the fruits of your actions. There is speaking happening. I am right here. The speaking is having an effect on you. The effect on you is your karma, not mine. It's only mine if I buy it if I am attached to the fruits of the actions. I am merely doing what I can do as impeccably as I can do it. What effect it has is what effect it has. These are rules of the game that lend themselves to psychological systems very, very easily, by the way, if you can just start to hear them from that other framework. <clears throat> I'm not going to speak about methods for changing consciousness. That's a whole other domain. Um, I will talk just a moment about systems that exist in other cultures that, may, that are applicable, that are usable by psychology. For example, the chakra system in energy systems, in, uh, which is known as working with Kundalini. If you consider the... Um, and now that acupuncture and a number of systems are coming in which are working with much more subtle energy systems that aren't immediately uh, measurable by physiological measuring devices. And by the way, to say it baldly, as far as I am concerned, the way in which we know in the universe is not limited to thinking. It is not limited to our senses. It is not limited to our physiological, neurophysiological brain processes, laterality notwithstanding. It is a much more exquisite game than that. And what, 
What scientists did was they pounced on laterality as the explanation for all meditation, for everything. Biofeedback doesn't get at the essence of what the game is about. Laterality theories do not get at it. This is all still looking for the watch under the street lamp, as far as I'm concerned. I just wanted to get it out, out front, so save trouble later on. Questions? Now, in the chakra systems, if you want to see parallels that are interesting, you can see that the first chakra, which is located between the genitals and the anus, sort of up in the nerve, right up in up there, you could understand within Darwinian theory of evolution and people fighting with each other for survival, because that's the survival mechanism. This is oversimplified in analogs, but let's work with them. You go up to the second one, which is called, interestingly enough, Svadhisthana, meaning her favorite resort. Speaking of the snake, the serpent comes up and stops there because it's such a nice, it's like the Riviera. And that's, uh, that's the sexual, sensual chakra. And that's where Freud was. He spent all his time there with guilt. And built, guilt is as much part of it as joy. I mean, it's just, you know, it's the opposite coin. It's the polarity that's just as attached. And he built a whole system of reality out of that, right? And he interpreted everything else in terms of second chakra, which upset other of his colleagues like Adler, who was busy with the third chakra, which was concerned with power. And he built his whole trip on power. Jung, on the other hand, got into the fourth chakra with the collective unconscious and with the sense of brotherhood or humanity and his reality was a fourth chakra reality. And just like standing on the corner watching all the girls go by, personality, these are different ways of cutting the pie. Each of these chakras has an entirely different reality connected with it. And when you run through your own chakras, you will see that you are very, it's a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of phenomenon. You are very different people. I love you, I love you until I'm turned on by you and then screw you, I want, you know. It's the difference between love and lust. Love is fourth chakra, lust is second chakra. Lust has objects. The first, second, and third chakra have only objects in them. Other people are objects to be manipulated. And most of the power domain that we call politics is seeing other people as objects to be manipulated, to give your ego structure, your intellectual structure, more and more power. The fourth chakra is the beginning, which is the heart chakra, is the beginning of where compassion lies. It is the recognition that other people exist as us. The fifth chakra, which is in the throat, is the turning inward into towards the one. The sixth chakra is the higher wisdom or the uh, understanding of the more profound laws. And the seventh chakra is the merging back into the one. Now, um, and there are beings that live on all of these chakras. The seventh is only one, of course. A, such a system is a useful system for psychologists to reflect upon in reconsidering Western psychology. Such a system as the Abhidhamma of Asudimaga, which somebody like Dan Goleman uh, has written a book about, integrating the, the psychology of Southern Buddhism into Western psychology. Those psychologies are so sophisticated, we haven't even begun to touch the the edge of that kind of sophistication of analysis of mind content, of thought content, of states of mind.
<clears throat> I'm going to take time to read something very, I think that's a very beautiful thing. It's just about two pages long. It's an article that appeared in a book called Mortal Lessons by Seltzer. And while I have lots more I could talk about, I want to just read this and then I'll give you a summary, sort of. On the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital where I work, there appeared an announcement. Yeshi Dondon, it read, will make rounds at 6 o'clock on the morning of June 10th. The particulars were then given, followed by a notation. Yeshi Dondon is personal physician to the Dalai Lama. I am not so leathery a skeptic that I would knowingly ignore an emissary of the gods. Not only might such sang-froid be inimical to one's earthly well-being, it could take care of eternity as well. Thus, on the morning of June 10, I joined the clutch of white coats waiting in the small conference room adjacent to the wards selected for the rounds. The air in the room is heavy with ill-concealed dubiety and suspicion of bamboozlement. At precisely six o'clock, he materializes, a short, golden, barrelly man dressed in a sleeveless robe of saffron and maroon. His scalp is shaven. The only visible hair is a scanty black line above each hooded eye. He bows in greeting while his young interpreter makes the introduction. Yeshi Dondon, we are told, will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff. The diagnosis is un as unknown to Yeshi Dondon as it is to us. The examination of the patient will take place in our presence, after which we will reconvene in the conference room where Yeshi Dondon will discuss the case. We are further informed that for the past two hours, Yeshi Dondon has purified himself by bathing, fasting, and prayer. I, having breakfasted well, performed only the most desultory of ablutions and given no thought at all to my soul, glanced furtively at my fellows. Suddenly we seem a soiled, uncouth lot. The patient has been awakened early and told that she is to be examined by a foreign doctor and had been asked to produce a spe fresh specimen of urine. So when we enter her room, the woman shows no surprise. She has long ago taken on that mixture of compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness. This was to be about another in an endless series of tests and examinations. Yeshi Stondon steps to the bedside while the rest stand apart watching. For a long time, he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body with his eyes, but seeming to fix his glance at a place just above her supine form. I, too, study her, and no physical sign nor obvious symptoms gives a clue to the nature of her disease. At last, he takes her hand, raising it in both of his own. Now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his head drawn down into the collar of his robe. His eyes are closed as he feels for her pulse. In a moment, he has found the spot, and for the next half hour, he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman beneath his fingers, cradling her hand in his. All the power of the man seems to have been drawn into this one purpose. It is palpitation of the pulse, raised to the state of ritual. From the foot of the bed where I stand, it is as though he and the patient have entered a special place of isolation, of apartness, about which a vacancy hovers, and across which no violation is possible. 
After a moment, the woman rests back upon her pillow. From time to time, she raises her head to look at the strange figure above her, then sinks back once more. I cannot see their hands joined in a correspondence that is exclusive, intimate, his fingertips receiving the voice of her sick body through the rhythm and throb she offers at her wrist. All at once, I am envious, not of him, not of Yeshi Dondon for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched so, received. And I know that I, who have palpitated a hundred thousand pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Yeshi Dondon straightens, gently places the woman's hand upon the bed and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and two sticks. Yeshi Dandan pours a portion of the urine specimen into the bowl and proceeds to whip the liquid with the two sticks. This he does for several minutes until a foam is raised, then bowing above the bowl, he inhales the odor three times. He sets down the bowl and turns to leave. All this while he has not uttered a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out to him in a voice, in a voice at once urgent and serene, Thank you, doctor. She says, and touches her other hand, the place, to, with her other hand, the place he had held on her wrist, as though to recapture something that had visited there. Yeshi Dondon turns back for a moment to gaze at her, then steps into the corridor. Rounds are at an end. We are seated once more in the conference room. Yeshi Dondon speaks for the first time in soft Tibetan sounds that I have never heard before. He has barely begun when the young interpreter begins to translate, the two voices continuing in tandem, a bilingual fugue, the one chasing the other. It is like the chanting of monks. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers, eddying. These vortices are in her blood, he says, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of her heart, long, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charged the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades in the springtime, battering, knocking loose the land and flooding her breath. Thus he speaks and is silent. A professor asks of his colleague, may we now have the diagnosis? The host of the rounds, the man who knows, answers, congenital heart disease, interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened. <clears throat> Through it charge the full waters that flood her breath. So here then is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. He is more than doctor. He is priest. I'll tell you, he's asking about nagging doubts. It's a good one to end on, because this one will really blow you away. <laughs> People say to me, uh, well, it's interesting that you have these beliefs. And I say to them, these aren't my beliefs, this is the way it is.
And I can hear myself saying that through many other ears from my past. I can hear he's a psychotic because he's closed the door. I don't live any longer. I don't believe in God. God is. I don't believe in the illusion of God. The illusion of God is. Right? I mean, it's all beyond that. The, the realm of doubts went a long time ago. I'm over the edge. Right? Okay. It's just beyond the pale now for this lifetime. Maybe at the end, as I die dead, instead of floating out, and all those people I've taken through death to float out, and I find out all you do is die dead, I'll say, oh well, blew it that time. <laughs> and then again, maybe not. But it's beyond that. I'm no longer open. I am just am what I am. I can't apologize for it. I mean, I can understand the weirdity of it, but it just is the way it is. In India, when we meet in part, we say namaste, which means I honor the place in you where when you're in yours and I'm in mine, there's only one of us. Namaste. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.